I think it increases our ability to empathize with the experiences of others. Uh, and that's true across time, but also in our own present moment, that the more we understand about the history of the church, the history of our nation, uh, the history of, you know, I do local history as well, even understanding the history of, of, of like literally where we live, um, helps us understand that, um, you know, that our experience, my experience is not universally shared, even among people in my own day and age, and certainly not across uh, history as well. And I think it helps us should help us become a little bit more empathetic towards uh, towards others in our in our own present moment. Um, also, perhaps a bit more gracious at times towards uh, towards the struggles that others have faced, and uh, and just sort of opening our again, kind of opening our eyes, opening our minds to the the idea that my experience, you know, a, a, as John Young is not is not universal. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with John Young, Assistant Professor of Church History at Ambridge University. Now John and I first met a few years ago at the Stone Campbell Journal Conference in Knoxville, Tennessee, and soon became friends when we discussed our dissertation topics, which, at the time, we were still working on. John's work in history at the postgraduate level was very helpful for me as I had to wade into the methods of historians whose area of emphasis lies outside the Bible. John and I had a delightful conversation during our episode today about how, believe it or not, teaching church history can actually be spiritually formative. In our interview, John had lots to say on how church history is valuable even for non-historians, And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that John has published a few books on church history, and I'll put a link to those in the description. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us, and maybe share us with someone that you think might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, sir. Really appreciate you uh, jumping in here with us. It's great to be here. Uh, Excited to able to share a little bit about uh, history, church history, what kind of value it might have for uh, those like us, uh, who are, I guess, people who are not like us, who have not chosen history as a career right, uh, yeah. or a dissertation or a calling or whatever whatever mm-hmm. phrase you want to use there. Yeah, so. yeah. and for those of you who uh, who are still with us after that introduction, <laughs> we will... It is pretty compelling. Yeah, it is, yeah. John, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, and to help us kind of get to know you a little bit before we get into uh, church history, Stone Cattle movement history, all that good stuff that we uh, that we just mentioned here. Well, sure. Well, I, uh, I as, a, as my accent probably uh, communicates here, uh, I am a lifelong Alabamian. Uh, I grew up in Florence, Alabama, one of the hotbeds of Churches of Christ. Uh, I was going to say, I've heard of Florence. Best, no, okay. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, dating back to, to the work of T.B. Laramore in the 19th century, sort of a, again, a hotbed of Churches of Christ, Restoration <laughs> Movement history. Um, I attended uh, the successor school to, to Laramore's Mars Hill College, which is now Mars Hill Bible School from kindergarten to 12th grade, mm-hmm. uh, went all the way through there, uh, graduated in 2008, uh, moved to Tuscaloosa, where I still live uh, in the fall of 2008, uh, started as an undergraduate uh, history and political science student, uh, 
you know, completed my uh, degree in 2012 and had originally planned to go to law school. I oh. started law school, stayed for about three months, decided that wasn't for me. Okay. Talk more about that in a second, but then yeah. I uh, enrolled uh, in a master's program and then a PhD program in history. Uh, graduated from there uh, again, also from Alabama last year in uh, right of the, the beginning of COVID times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I now work as an assistant professor in the Turner School of Theology at Amridge University, uh, okay. based in Montgomery, but appointment is fully online, so I still live here in, in Tuscaloosa. All right. I've heard of Tuscaloosa also. Yes, yes, the home, the home of football. as if it is. Yeah, yeah. As a as a lifelong uh, Tennessee Volunteers fan, I have heard all about um, Tuscaloosa. At least the at least in the Saban era, right? Uh, right. During yeah. Fulmer's heyday, it was it was Knoxville. Yeah, uh, those days are long gone though. Before I did, so I'll, I'll like to think I could take some credit for the the football success since then. But uh, yeah, probably yeah, you should. <laughs> you should. I didn't know about law school. What um, can I ask? What was it about? Where and like what was it about law school where you eventually said uh, this is not for me? Well, sure. I, I actually uh, had gotten accepted and enrolled and started at the law school also here at Alabama, okay, uh, cool. University of Alabama Law School. Um, I had worked uh, as an intern at the district attorney's office back home full-time for for several summers and and even though i had declared a history major as an undergraduate my plan had always been even from early high school all the way through uh, to, to become a lawyer um, but then when i actually got to law school uh, you know a couple months in I, I really figured out that this just was not what i wanted to be doing for a career um, i realized that what i what i really enjoyed was the people i worked with uh, at, at the office rather than the actual material and, and sort of what I would be doing. And I had this moment where I was uh, I, I was sitting in the law library in the history section one day and uh, I was working on some readings for, I guess it was probably contracts class. And I decided that, you know, what, I would rather be reading basically anything off of the shelf right now. You know, so there's sort of a book about William the Conqueror up there for some reason. Hey, and there you I go, don't anything about William the Conqueror. But, you know, it was like, I'd rather be reading that than this. And yeah. so um, I actually uh, dropped out a couple of weeks later and then started taking history grad classes uh, about a month later when the semester rolled over. Uh, and wow. this would have been fall of 2012 going into spring of 2013. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, my, my brief and not so illustrious legal career uh, came to came to <laughs> a conclusion uh, there, but it led me to, to what I needed to be doing, which was uh, studying history instead. Fascinating. So. Yeah. I, I, I did not know that about you because I had a similar experience. It just took me a little bit longer to realize um, I, I graduated uh, from Harding as a, as a history major. And, uh, you know, took, took all the history classes that one would expect, you know, American history, you know, you know, things like Jacksonian era all the way up to, you know, 1945 in the present, stuff like that. Uh, you know, Reformation and uh, you know, Renaissance and Reformation, that kind of stuff. Um, and then was thinking, I'll, I'll teach high school history and social studies, but it would be more advantageous for me to go ahead and have a master's degree. Uh, because where I was where I was anticipating going to teach would be in public school system back in Nashville because that's where I'm from, and both my folks are public school teachers. I grew up in the public school system, so it just it made sense on paper. But I got I was about halfway through my master's of science in education the day that I stepped foot onto the high school campus um, for pre-student teaching. It just hit me. It's like ugh, uh, no. But I didn't really know what to do with it at, 
that point. The other time, the other thing that I really, really noticed was actually when I was in the middle of student teaching, I was preparing lessons, you know, my PowerPoints for, for what we're going to do. And I actually had a really great student teaching experience. Um, but I was sitting, I, I was sitting in my room and I looked at a shelf, <laughs> you know? So I was like, as soon as you said you were looking at a shelf in the yep. library, I looked at a shelf and I saw some of these books up here behind me. And I looked at those and thought, I miss, I miss that. And yeah. specifically what I was looking at was a Greek New Testament because I had <laughs> minored in Greek because I thought it'd be fun, right? I had no idea at that point that that was God saying something like, hey, Kevin, maybe I've gifted you for something along these lines. <laughs> I just thought, I just thought I just really liked studying the Bible, specifically the Greek New Testament. So eventually, you know, through some, uh, you know, through some, uh, professors who were there in the history department and some others. I, I thought, well, MDiv and route to a PhD. Okay, yikes, that's a long time, but that's what I need to be doing. So anyway, I, a neat connection. Yeah. I, I didn't know that know that about yeah, you. Yeah, I tra tra traded three years of law school for, I guess it ended up being, you know, seven years, eight years of, uh, of, of, of history graduate work instead. <laughs> you know, it was a, a doctorate at the end of either program, but one took considerably longer than the other <laughs> no. uh, uh, to get through. I know. But, to your advantage, though, at least people now will call you doctor. They'll call you yes, Dr. Young. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, JDs are great. They're useful. They, they do what they do. They are doctorates, but nobody, nobody calls you doctor. Um, with just a JD, so and and depending on the point of the semester, sometimes students will throw in uh, everything from uh, exalted reverend doctor professor, <laughs> depending on how much uh, how much they need extra credit towards the end. You know, all the, yeah. the the honorifics and the titles sort of yeah. multiply at times. So. That was that was one fun thing about going to Asbury Seminary, um, which is it's not a Methodist school, but it it is um, it is profoundly and deeply shaped by a, by a Wesleyan tradition, and so one one expression, one manifestation of a Wesleyan tradition is uh, is all the various types of Methodist churches. Um, and I had some friends who either went into, you know, who were in the United Methodist Church or some friends who were, um, who eventually joined the Anglican uh, Church of North America. And so not to, as opposed to the Episcopal Church, the, specifically the Anglican Church of North America. And they get all these cool titles like, uh, you know, Reverend Doctor, such and yes. such. Like, man, you know, that's, I'm just brother so-and-so. <laughs> brother doctor, I suppose. Brother doctor. <laughs> I like, we're, we're going to make that a thing. That's, the, yes, we're going to make that a thing. That'll now. work. Yeah, here we go. Brother doctor. It's been a productive day already. I, we could probably call it a day right now. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So University of Alabama, um, you know, master's in history, PhD in history. You specifically mentioned at the, at the, at the introduction here, you specifically mentioned that you were, um, that we were talking about church history and things along those lines. What, how'd you get into church history? Why, why church history? And but even more specifically than that, why the, why the history of our, our church tradition, our, our church branch, the, the Stone Campbell movement, the American Restoration movement, there goes by a couple of names. Sure. What sort of um, piqued your interest in all this? Yeah, so when I when I when I left law school and decided that I wanted to study history, I, I didn't actually know what I wanted to study. I certainly didn't have any idea of what I wanted to research. This was not a moment where I sort of, you know, had had a had a moment where I, you know, where I just knew for sure that I wanted to do church history and anything of the sort. And yeah. really across that first semester, I kind of struggled with kind of casting about, you know, taking classes, wasn't really involved with any research at first, um, but I knew I was going to have to to work, start working on my first article for a seminar paper, these kinds of things, um, even at the master's level, there's some research requirements. And so yeah. 
Um, it wasn't until the very last semester of that first semester of taking history graduate courses uh, that we read a book, and I've actually got it here um, for the listeners or viewers at home, rather those mm -hmm. who are, yeah. are watching rather than listening on the podcast, uh, a book called To Serve God in Walmart uh, by Bethany Morton. Um, we read this in a, uh, a just a sort of a, a grad level history, American history class. And it was a book that, you know, my research doesn't have really anything to do specifically with it. But it's an exploration of the intersections of, of, of kind of business culture, free enterprise, and also Christian education. Uh, and a lot of it is set in Arkansas. So, so Harding University actually plays a pretty yeah. large role um, in the book. And wow. I was sort of sitting there reading through this, you know, preparing for the last week of classes. And I was like, wait, people actually study about our, about the churches of Christ for a living? I like, <laughs> and, and I guess at some level, I sort of knew that that was the thing, right? I grew up in Florence um, you know, at, at Heritage Christian, right? There are people who, who studied the history of the restoration movement for a living. Mm -hmm. I'd heard presentations, but it never really sort of clicked that could be something that, that I could do also. Yeah. Uh, and, and so kind of reading through this, I was like, okay, there's maybe a space here at Alabama for me, be, me, me to be able to do some of this kind of research. Uh, so in the, the following semester and across that next year and a half or so, um, I really dug into a, a project on TB Laramore, kind of one of the most famous late 19th, early 20th century mm -hmm. uh, figures in the restoration movement, specifically with, especially within Churches of Christ, um, that also related to the history of education and some of his work as an educator, not just as a minister. Uh, and then from there, uh, started looking into the history of some of the smaller groups associated with our, uh, with our fellowship and with our movement. And that's what turned into the dissertation and then, uh, you know, kind of got you know, hands in several different other kinds of projects yeah. mm -hmm. uh, at this point. And again, sort of, a, I guess you can sort of say happenstance or perhaps something more spiritual than that. But whatever it was, it was it was fortunate. It led me, led me to, to, to what I'm doing today. Yeah, man. OK, so you I, I mean, you kind of just backed into it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not expecting to uh, not expecting to go into that. Um, when you uh, talk to us about your uh, about your church background, um, as I'm curious if it was the same as mine, the the church that I grew up in um, attending in Nashville, the the church where my mom grew up, my folks are still there, my brother's a deacon there, so like it's the church is very much uh, very much important to me, and I had a wonderful experience, learned to love God's word and His people. Uh, we we talked about things wild wild and mildly controversial things like uh, grace and the Holy Spirit and stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, stuff like Shocking. That. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but we, uh, I never, I don't remember hearing much or anything about how how we got to do the things that we do. Sure. Was your experience different, or how did, how did that work for you? Largely similar. So again, I, you know, I grew up in Florence um, in the, the congregation I attended growing up, which is the Chisholm Hills congregation. I still have family there as well. Mm -hmm. um, several of the faculty members from Heritage at the time, it was International Bible College, uh, mm -hmm. were also also members there. And so sort of grew up sitting, you know, and kind of hearing lessons from them and these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, but there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of discussion about the history of Churches of Christ, the history of the Restoration Movement. Um, you know, there, there was certainly a, a scholarly bent within the within the congregation, mm -hmm. you know, of proximity to the to the college, yeah. uh, but not much on the history. I do remember I was probably maybe fourth grade, fifth grade, a little too, a little too young to appreciate it. Um, actually, a faculty member from 
I'm not sure if it was International Bible College or Heritage Christian yet at, the, at that time, uh, did a maybe a summer series, a few weeks uh, class on the history of the Restoration Movement. And of course, you know, being in the you know fourth grade, fifth grade, you know, I, I was a little too young to, to yeah. really appreciate it. I hadn't quite caught the history bug yet. Um, certainly not the church history bug. Sure. You know, but looking back on it, it's sort of one of those missed opportunities that perhaps I could have gotten started in some of this stuff a little bit a little bit there sooner. Um, but uh, it was not necessarily something that was any kind of sustained uh, study or discussion. Um, there was no sort of prohibition against talking about us having a history, yeah. uh, but it wasn't necessarily something that that came up super often either. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I've only been uh, I've only been in one church that had a. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think it's just only one church that had a sustained, you know, like quarter-long class on the American Restoration Movement, yeah. and it was a church that I was actually preaching for at the time, but it wasn't me. It was our friend Garrett Best, who did a great, yes. he, he did a great, uh, a great class on, um, on American Restoration Movement history, and a, a lot of the class was just sort of taking big topics that, uh, that you know, early restoration leaders uh, talked about, and sort of giving, uh, giving quotes and big sections and, you know, just like direct quotes from a lot of things that he had read. That was a, that was a fun class, but that's the only time. And yeah. it was, it was from a guy who, you know, was, had gotten his MDiv and was in route to his PhD. There's not a ton of, of folks who can just have that kind of time to study and, and study and do all that. Um, let me ask this, what, uh, what's the value of, of church history? And let's uh, maybe maybe for the sake of uh, kind of starting broad and then narrowing it down, um, what's the value of understanding history of the church? You know, let's let's start, you know, Jesus and Jesus and the and the Book of Acts. You know, let's start there and then kind of work our way up towards uh, narrowing it down a little bit for American Restoration Movement. What's the value of knowing that history for folks like? you know, folks in the pews or even folks who are in ministry or some kind of teaching position like you? Sure. Well, I guess I'll say sort of the, the glib answer is that the value of church history is that it got me a job. Uh, but, but I think kind of <laughs> more, broadly than, more broadly than that, um, I, I guess I really kind of think about it as having, you know, when I when talk about the study of church history writ large as, as having applicability is having value in maybe three main areas. This is kind of some stuff that I've been thinking through. Yeah. And I, I had mentioned to you recently, I did a, I did a, another lesson series at church where we got into some of this material. So if you see me kind of glancing down at my notes yeah. here, I'm, 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 that's I'm all right. Well, and like, I, I like catching up, but you, like you post about this kind of stuff on social yeah. media and every now and then I'll see it. It's like, man, that's a cool class. Um, how, how can we like, how can we farm John out to, uh, to <laughs> come teach something over here? Be careful what you ask for. But uh, in <laughs> yeah. terms of value of church history, I guess the first thing that where, where I really see a benefit for church history for for people who are not historians or church historians by by training or profession is that it it really opens our eyes to the possibility and really to the reality that things have not always been as they are today. Um, without historical conscience, it's uh, it, it, it's very easy for us to, to just sort of assume that whether things are good, bad, or ugly in the present moment, and this extends beyond a church history Absolutely. discussion to history writ large, yeah. 
is to say that we, we assume that things are unchanging or, or, or that the way that things are now is how they always were and therefore that's how they always have to be going forward. And I think sometimes studying church history, well, certainly over the, the span of 2000 years, but yeah. even within restoration movement history in a couple of centuries, um, we find that often there has been more change you know, certainly a lot of commonality, a lot of con continuity, but also areas in which um, change has taken place, um, debates, divisions, topics that, that aren't even on our radar yeah. now, you know, were things that divided the church or, or, or you know, people were, were labeled heretics for certain views or all, all, all right. sorts of things, that, and those are not even on our radar today. So again, kind of opens our eyes to the possibility of, of change over time. One, um, second, uh... Sure. Just to jump in like, with one kind of brief example of that, you talk about debates that aren't even on our radar these days. Um, you know, oh, not that not that long ago, right in the grand scheme of world history, not that long ago, it was a big issue whether you celebrated communion with one cup, right, or you had individual cups, and right. uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion about that. Interesting too that that also. Yeah, there was some practical reason for changing from one cup yes. to individual cups as people began to understand about germs in the midst of a pandemic that we that was experienced uh, or an epidemic at least uh you know a hundred years ago so right and, and even kind of a, another example that always comes to mind for me within within kind of restoration movement history circles and, and thinking about uh kind of different practices within the churches of christ is that uh one of the groups that I study uh, and that I wrote about in my, in my dissertation turned book is a group known as the Christadelphians, which are a mm -hmm. small, mostly British, um, little some, some in the U.S. and some in Australia as well, um, kind of offshoot of the movement, uh, dating back to a, a disagreement dispute between their founder, John Thomas, and Alexander Campbell. And, and although Thomas was involved in a lot of sort of you know, what we might call prophetic speculations, uh, different kind of views in the millennium, so he sure. came yeah. get along in a lot of a lot of different areas. But the thing that actually sort of forced the debate or the division between the two was whether it was necessary for believers from other traditions to be rebaptized upon joining the Restoration Movement. Mm -hmm. And Thomas said yes. And Campbell said no, uh, and Thomas was actually basically kicked out of the movement. Was, was, was sort of you know you know put on blast by Campbell and yeah. and, and sort of sent packing over that. Well, and then in, in many circles in the churches of Christ today, that that position, Thomas's position, is the one that actually right took you know took you know took root. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when I sort of explain that story, you know, people question and sort of say, well, you know, wait, our movement was the one that said that people didn't have to be, but yes, actually, right, things yeah. change over time, and so it just kind of opens our eyes to, you know, things that we, you know, again, right, wrong, or indifferent on, on the on the substance of the mm -hmm. matter, you know, things that maybe we would sort of accept unquestioningly uh, are, are perhaps much more recent developments than we might, uh, we might realize. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that was the first thing. Things sure. have not always been the same. And uh, that kind of, I think, I think a phrase you used earlier was historical consciousness. I, I like, yeah. I, I like that notion. All right. What's uh, you said there were three, what's, uh, what's another yes. thing you can share with us? Second would be that I think it increases our ability to empathize with the experiences of others. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true across time, but also in our own present moment that the more we understand about the history of the church, the history of our nation, uh, the history of, you know, I do local history as well, even understanding the history of, of, of like literally where we live, um, mm -hmm. helps us understand that, um, you know, that our experience, my experience is not universally shared, even among people in my own day and age, and certainly mm -hmm. not across uh, history as well. And I think it helps us 
should help us become a little bit more empathetic towards uh, towards others in our in our own present moment. Um, also, perhaps a bit more gracious at times towards uh, towards the struggles that others have faced, and uh, and just sort of opening our again, kind of opening our eyes, opening our minds to the the idea that my experience, you know, a, a, as John Young is not is not universal. Um, that that you know, the human experience is in again in ways good bad and ugly much more uh varied than than what i've lived in my 31 years yeah very true uh one one thing that i know a lot of folks experience say in a church context is when they first go on some kind of overseas mission trip to a developing country yes and they suddenly realize oh um maybe I complain a little too much about some things that are actually kind of relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that uh, that can, yeah, I can see how that can help and or at least be a similar type of experience from kind of what you're describing here. Yeah, and, and sometimes, you know, you're going to see debates over <laughs> dividing between matters of primary and secondary importance is often in the eye of the beholder, but things that we might mm -hmm. describe as, as matters of secondary importance, when, when churches are sometimes splitting over those kinds of issues, it's it's sort of evidence that the church has had space to grow, and it, it's not sort of constantly under attack, right? It's sort of a church mm -hmm. uh, that, that is fighting for its existence and survival is, is not, you know, splitting over, you know, the color of the carpet or uh, you know, any other sort of number of, uh, you know, issues of, I wouldn't even call that secondary tertiary or, right. or beyond that <laughs> yeah. importance, yeah. Um, that that things that we might uh, be inclined to, to sort of, uh, you know, draw lines in the sand over are, are not globally um, important in, in ways, yeah. and they're certainly not always historically important either. Again, the thing, kind of reverse of what we said earlier, the things that historical actors often found very important you know, well, they would be just as confused by the things sometimes that that, that we make uh, matters of first importance. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, if, if they were to see us in our in our context today. Yeah, very true. Very true. All right. So, ability to empathize with the different experience of others, um, which is it really, uh, it it's really humanizing in a way. History can help us humanize other people that otherwise we might not might not know or or it might be less inherently sensitive to for any number of reasons. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and the third thing that you mentioned. Sure. Um, history at its core is storytelling. Um, that there's a, there's a lot of other things that, that, that goes into history. There's, there's research, there's the archival work, there's the, you know, sifting through evidence, interpretations, these kinds of things, but, but, Ultimately, the finished product of history is a story, mm. uh, and I think this is where church history has something important to offer to the kind of the person in the pew, is that studying church history and considering our place, whether as an individual or as a movement, in the longer history uh, of church history allows us to, to perhaps to better understand our role not only in the human experience, but in 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 the the long sweep of church history and God's redemptive work, and, and trying to understand ourselves as being part of something much larger than ourselves, something that is moving from one place to another, that is moving towards an end uh, in some way, and that there's there's stuff that needs to be done. Uh, 
uh, before that time too, and, and figuring out, you know, where my contributions, you know, maybe I'm not a historian, maybe I'm not a scholar, but I'm part of the body. I'm part of the part of the church. I have something that I need to be doing. Yeah. And, and sometimes having a, a broader um, sort of a longer perspective on church history and, and the ways in which people have, have, have lived in the church over 2000 years uh, can help open again, using the phrase, open our eyes, open <laughs> right. our eyes to uh, the possibilities that we have in front of us today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did not ask you to, to go into this, but uh, I'm curious if you would be willing to at least uh, kind of dig into this a little bit as a historian, like you said, you know, history at its core is storytelling. Say, all right, say that you are wanting to uh, tell the story of either an event or a person or something along those lines. Kind of, would you be willing to walk us through, kind of briefly, that process of, sure. I've, I've got, I've got these, uh, you know, these data points. How do I, like, I need to form some kind of coherent story. Uh, talk to us about selectivity because that actually i mean when you talk about doing history and telling a story that actually gives us some insight to what say the evangelists were doing because they are telling the story of jesus's life and you know matthew will include something that mark won't and vice versa and john has a lot of stuff that the others don't and so like there's some degree of selectivity yeah. And there, it, can he can he kind of give us the ten peso version, sort of walk us through, how, like <laughs> sure. how that actually works? Yeah, and I think that comparison is apt because you know in, in the beginning of Luke and Acts, right? There's this discussion of, of, of oh, kind yeah. of sifting through witnesses and, and the process of research that went into into those books, which I think is really interesting. John mm-hmm. also talks about at the end of his gospel about how many other things could have been written. Right. He just you know doesn't have space, and all the books in the world don't have space <laughs> to contain them. Um. Let me give an example from a project that I'm actually kind of working on recently, because I think giving okay. us will help will help work through this. So, um, so this article, is a sneak peek into right, this uh, is this is an article that's coming out next year. This is actually some research I presented at Christian Scholars Conference a few weeks ago. So awesome. it's sort of out in the public sphere now, but it'll Good. be in print next year. Great. Um, but it, it's a it's an article project on uh, the disciples of Christ in Alabama in the 1920s, and they they tried to start uh, what would have essentially been a, a a seminary that would have been officially connected with the University of Alabama um, in the 1920s uh, would have been funded by the disciples, uh, would have been taught by disciples, you know, disciple sponsored faculty members. But UA would have given credit and would have offered a bachelor's of divinity uh, degree um, through this kind of hybrid arrangement. This is a time where the university was growing. This was sort of the, the early heydays of UA football and sort of the increased national uh, stature of the university. Um, ultimately, it fell apart, didn't happen. The funding never materialized, as was the case for a lot of these kinds of uh, lots of schools. But the board of trustees did actually approve the arrangement. U- UA was UA signed off on it. But um, so when I first came across a reference to this, it was in a it was a book on disciples colleges. There was just a reference to this school of religion at Tuscaloosa. Well, I've lived in Tuscaloosa since 2008. I'd never heard of this. Yeah. Uh, and so I started digging through. And, and where I went from there was I started looking through old newspapers. A lot of times these would be digitized. Uh, some some were physical copies as well. Just looking for any kind of reference to, you know, school of religion, university school of religion, these kinds of things found a lot of material, and this kind of gets to your point about sifting, um, you know, sometimes newspapers, you know, there might be five or six newspapers that would carry the same story or a very similar, um, you know, bit of detail, bit of information about the school. 
And so it, it was trying to figure out, you know, which one of these seems the most credible, right? Uh, you know, the, the Tuscaloosa News right here in town would tend to get higher preference from me than a paper from, you know, halfway across the country sure. that, that's second or third hand. Um, you know, there's a process of, of reading, trying to read critically, uh, trying to make a, a best determination about which of these sources is most trustworthy. Uh, but in cases where there were discrepancies coming up, I, you know, try to figure out which had the most, um, you know, wh which details were the most accurate, uh, which ones were, were the closest to the source. Um, and then, you know, figuring out which things would help me tell the story, because there are, there are all sorts of other, you know, kind of rabbit holes we can sort of go down sure, there, yeah. you know, th things to chase or, or, or leads to pursue. Um, but ultimately, you know, if I'm wanting to tell the story of this particular institution, you know, I have to say, I'm going to start around this time, I'm going to end around this time, and I need to figure out what happened in between. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it comes to, you know, giving a conference presentation or writing an article, the goal is to, to tell a compelling story uh, rooted in the historical evidence, a, a true story, you know, not just sort of uh, spinning yarns, um, you know, <laughs> right. much a little, little more rigorous than that, um, but, but, but to arrange the material in a way that informs the audience that it is, it is clear, it is understandable, human experience is incredibly messy. Uh, and, and so at some level, at, at one level, <laughs> our job understatement. Right, at one level, our job as historians is to, to, to sort of make things messy and to sort of uh, convey the complexity of human experience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, our finished products also need to actually leave the reader with something that they can take and understand. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for me, really that goal is always to, to tell the story uh, of what happened in a way that, it, that is understandable and that hopefully communicates some kind of larger point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, I, I love it. I love hearing, I love hearing you kind of work through that. Uh, that, that was one of the things that was a real treat for me when I was working on my dissertation to be able to talk with you, especially at, um, at a couple of the different uh, Stone Camel Journal conferences we attended there in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, man, it, it was so nice getting to talk with you because I, like my doctorate's in biblical studies, yours is in history proper. And it was just like, oh, I'm talking to a real historian and I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> doing some of this stuff too, but like he, he knows what's up. So. Well, it's funny now that I'm in I'm in a school of theology where, I, where I'm, I'm I'm sort of the, the, the lone wolf who, who sort of didn't go that route through. Right. That. So I, I'm kind yeah. of the, the imposter now. So yeah, well, uh, I mean, it, but... it seems like an MDiv is in your in your future. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm done with school at this point. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, one of the things that I have uh, that I have uh, appreciated about my my schooling i was just joking about mdivs just a second ago but one of the things i really appreciate about my schooling was that it did expose me to really like you said some of the messiness some of the complexities of of the history of our uh, our movement and i'll say peculiar in the sense that it's it's atypical from a lot of um from a lot of um you know church traditions that you can find here say in the united states um were relatively small compared to, you know, like anything that has the name Baptist on it. I mean, there's a thousand of them, you know, compared right. to like every, like every 10 of us. Yeah, okay, that's an exaggeration. Anyway, um, you yeah, but one of the things I really enjoyed about my schooling was that I did get exposed to some of that stuff and got to really dig in to see, it's like, oh yeah, there's some, and we had some guys that were just really awesome thinkers. And then we had some folks who sit back and think, what? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but for those who are kind of less familiar with 
some of the beginnings of the Stone Campbell movement. We've mentioned some names like Alexander Campbell. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, T.B. Laramore, some other folks uh, around, this, uh, around that time. For those who are less familiar with some of the beginnings of this movement, can you kind of walk us through maybe a bird's eye view of like, when, when did this movement that we are now a part of, when did that start? What, what was its major aims and goals? You mentioned restorationism. Help us kind of flesh that out a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, this is going to be the, the very, very, very abbreviated uh, version <laughs> of, uh, I'll go ahead and get on camera here, Visions of Restoration, the History of Churches of Christ. Hey, there we uh, go. I didn't put, put in a book, book plug in for myself. Also, uh, also by John Young. Right, right. Um, but uh, so big picture, restorationism, the idea of, of going back uh, to how things used to be ha has been present within Christian theology, you know, arguably since the second century, right? So, oh, to, yeah. you know, the, you know we, we need to, to go back how, how the apostles did it or, or, or how that first generation did it. But um, in terms of our specific context, uh, you know, groups known as you know, the Stone Campbell movement, the American Restoration Movement, sometimes just referred to as the, restor the Restoration Movement, you know, and that's insider language. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the folks, folks who, folks who use it terminology are generally insiders. Right. You know, the the best answer I can give is, is sort of early nineteenth century, uh, but that uh, that's with an asterisk next to it. Um, that again, <laughs> sure. there were yeah. a lot of different kind of very small movements. Um, you know, starting well, really kind of. In different places across the globe, but but, it, but it kind of for our tradition specifically, you know, looking back to a heritage in, in Britain um, uh, of people who were influenced again by, the, by these early ideas or these ideas of, of going back to you know an apostolic order, going back to how things used to be, um, allowing the New Testament or kind of a New Testament church to be our model for faith and practice. A lot of those ideas get get carried over, get brought over um, to North America, um, you know, either kind of in the late colonial early Republican period. And, and, you know, figures like Alexander Campbell, uh, his father, Thomas Campbell, uh, Barton Stone, you know, the men like these and, and women and, and others, um, you know, all around from the same time, there's just sort of these, these, these little pockets of, of, of Christians who, for one reason or the other, kind of start looking at what they're doing, and they find some, what they see as, as omissions or flaws or, or, or unbiblical or unscriptural additions to what they need to be doing, mm -hmm. and, and they start kind of breaking away gradually from more established churches. Um, some of these, you know, movements are coming out of Presbyterianism, some out of, out of the Baptist church, others from, uh, from other circles, but there's all the you know, one of the things that kind of holds this together again is this idea of of restoration of, of something is missing right the, the, whether it's a, a a practice whether it's an idea a belief something that we're doing we have had a hole and we need to fill it and what what, what fills it comes from the first century um, again and in a lot of cases this is articulated as well, sort of the church hasn't existed right like the the actual church you know hasn't existed in in, in centuries or you know a millennia plus and so there's this idea of we're going to, to bring back something that was missing. Um, at the same time, another important goal of many of these early restorers was also the unification of, of all Christians into right. one church. And that's something that at different times within our movement's history, those two, ideally they're not mutually exclusive, um, but in practice, a lot of times they, they, they have 
pulled in different directions, but the desire to, to seek uh, unity with, with Christians of, you know, of, of all stripes at, at different times um, ha has pulled against the idea that we need to restore a particular understanding or kind of a particular model of New Testament Christianity. Um, and so throughout the 19th century, um, there was a lot of internal tension within the movement over issues such as um, you know, the support of, uh, of missionary societies that, that were congregations would kind of come together and work on particular efforts, um, the use or non-use of instruments and in worship, mm -hmm. um, other issues as well, which all sort of, I think you can make a case, sort of boil down to, to people reading scripture through different hermeneutics, right? These are these are perhaps more symptoms than, than, than underlying causes. Um, by the time we get to, into the 20th century, we see a recognition that basically the movement has grown in two different directions. Uh, what, what we now kind of see as churches of Christ, you know, largely the acapella, um, you know, side of the movement. And this is about a century ago, a little over a century ago. And then sort of the, the Christian church of disciples of Christ, um, which then later split. That's another story right. for another time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that is to say that that kind of churches of Christ as being separate from uh, the disciples, the Christian churches, you know, often dated to 1906. This is when the U.S. Census Bureau uh, sort of formally acknowledges that there are two groups there. Um, yeah. But again, so I'm hesitant to put a, a date on this because you could say, sure. well, Churches of Christ, 1906, but that misses the Restoration Movement before it. You say Restoration right. Movement, uh, early 19th century, but it misses the much longer history of Restorationism within the Christian tradition. Uh, so it's a complicated story, but it is to say that these things have have been percolating for a long time, uh, but then kind of for our own specific movement. Um, if I'm teaching a class on restoration movement history, I typically would start early 19th century with a sort of a quick gesture back towards the longer history yeah. of restorationism or primitivism and bringing it up to the present day. Yeah, interesting too that you mentioned uh, that you mentioned primitivism because that was um, uh, that was basically, if I'm remembering correctly. That was an attempt to cut away a lot of a lot of what would now be called high church elements from, you know, from like from from worship or or from church polity or things along those lines. Um, I'm thinking of, really, I'm thinking of groups kind of like who sort of they're sort of colloquially referred to as pilgrims, but yeah. you know, or you know, early uh, Puritans or Anabaptists uh, from parts of England. England had gone through, um, so you say early 19th century, but then before, before that, you've got a, you know, you've got kind of a, you know, over a hundred years or so of, um, of England, you know, dealing with its church fractures because, you know, a hundred years before that. So we'll get into, 1600s 1500s okay gosh man like we're back 500 years now and um yep. you know henry the eighth had political and personal reasons to kind of break away from uh, from catholicism um there that yeah that doesn't really get on very firm footing until really we get to elizabeth the first right and then elizabeth the first takes us all the way up to james the first of england james the sixth of scotland same guy uh namesake of the king james bible and um i mean you know, like we're in Jamestown, you know, the namesake of also Jamestown, the early colony. Yeah. And like, it's wild how all that's kind of uh, connected, but, you know, the fracturing of churches in England that, um, you know, eventually led to some kind of, uh, you know, some degree or another persecution leads to, um, you know, these folks coming over here. Those European church struggles didn't stay in Europe. They yeah. they took their toys and came over here, 
and had the same fights. Yeah, and, and not to play too much insider baseball here, but but within the history, kind of historiography of the restoration movement, or which again, historiography is kind of the, the fancy word to say the study of how historical interpretations have changed yeah. over time. Uh, I can kind of feel listeners' eyes glazing over here, so I'll try to make this quick. Uh, but 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 it's to say that interpretations change over time, right? We we continue to study, we continue to understand things better. We go back to the archives, we try to read with with you know with 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 fresh eyes. We try to to come to uh, more accurate and more faithful conclusions about the past than perhaps we have had before. Uh, but one of the things about the the restoration of, or alternately the American restoration movement that 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 for many generations was kind of assumed this was sort of a, a uniquely American uh, yeah. thing, even though many of the kind of the founding generation were people who who were not born here in the U.S. Right? Sort of you had been trained in universities and, and grown up in churches overseas. Yeah. You know, but we sort of assume that it's kind of an American restoration movement, and even some of my writing uses that terminology, so I don't want to, to, to bash it too much, sure. but, but there's been a lot of work in recent years, um, I think of, of a book by Jamie Gorman, Among the Early Evangelicals, which has done a lot to put a lot of Alexander Campbell's uh, missionary work in this kind of broader Atlantic uh, framework, and say that this is this is a story that's larger than just what was happening in the U.S. Um, in the early 19th century. It's really connecting to, to these international, uh, kind of transnational uh, yeah threads as well um is that jamie sort of, I'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt go ahead yeah i mean it's uh, jamie gorman or J james gorman uh among From the Johnson. early evangelicals yeah among yeah, that was, the i early... believe that was his dissertation turned book oh awesome uh, yeah definitely yeah, worth okay. checking out and, and it's a it's a good um overview of a lot of the origins uh, of what would become the, the the campbell movement you know part of the stone campbell movement really focuses more on campbell uh, because of his connections, kind of missionary organizations, missionary societies, these kinds of things, but yeah. um, definitely worth checking out. But it gets so it, that was kind of going among, back to... Sorry, that was Among the Early Evangelicals? Yes. By, yes. by James Gorman. Yeah, so yes. for those who don't know, uh, uh, James Gorman is a professor at Johnson University in Knoxville, formerly Johnson Bible College, that uh, Johnson is affiliated with the independent Christian churches, and um, you know, that's uh, that's something that we mentioned earlier is, uh, is sort of an offshoot of the Stone Campbell movement. Um, that part of the world, especially where I was um, not that long ago up in central Kentucky, um, much more heavily prevalent. Um, you know, the, the presence of, um, of independent Christian churches is much more prevalent than, say, Church of Christ, which for those who grew up, say, in Nashville, Memphis, Dallas, Florida, you know, places along those lines, places, uh, you know, in the heart of the Bible Belt, uh, Church of Christ are everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, well, thanks for the book recommendation by Jamie. Yes. Um, sorry to cut you off earlier. Uh, what were you going to say? Oh, it was just circling back to that question of periodization and sort of where we start when we start mm -hmm. talking about the Restoration Movement. Hit, periodization is another one of those kind of 50 cent uh, historians <laughs> terms. Basically yeah. just means yeah. where we start and where we stop. Um, but, but those questions can be surprisingly loaded uh, because, you know, you're, you're sort of saying, well, this is this counts as the movement or this doesn't, you yeah. know, based on, on where I start that story. Uh, so in practical terms, if I'm teaching a Restoration Movement history, class and I've got you know 13 weeks at church or six weeks at church or I've got a you know, 14 week semester you know at, at Amridge um, I tend to start the early 19th century because you know right. you could go back much much further than that um, you know from a practical standpoint you sort of have mm. to draw the line somewhere but it, it's it's almost inconceivable to think about a Stone Campbell movement a restoration movement without it standing on the shoulders of the Reformation movement mm. you know or you know a Luther a Calvin an Erasmus even you know yeah. some of the you know, from from those earlier generations and so really to have that kind of that that more that fuller picture of it it requires us to to go 
to 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 dig a little bit deeper uh, beyond our own immediate context. Yeah, very true, very true. Speaking of teaching classes like this at uh, at church, uh, for the last few weeks, I've been teaching a class on Sunday evenings at church called Early Christians Speak. I've lifted the title of that class from a from a book by Everett Ferguson. Um, who uh, taught for years and years at uh, Abilene Christian University here in Abilene, Texas. I say here, meaning I'm in Texas. I'm not in Abilene. <laughs> Sorry, in Abilene, Texas. Um, yeah, you could be in the same state and still be like 11 hours away. <laughs> right. That's it's close to that. It's close right. enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm literally closer to, uh, to Louisiana than I think oh. I am to uh, you know, like Abilene or anyway. Oh. Anyway, um, I've been teaching a class on Sunday evenings called Early Christians Speak, and basically what we've been doing is working through some of the second century writings of early Christians, second and third century writings, this collection of folks known as the Apostolic Fathers. What I've wanted to show in that class is that when these, when these folks are writing, they are they are working with scripture. They're working with Old and New Testament. Uh, a lot of times the New Testament, but they're working with Old and New Testament. They are trying to figure out how do we apply this? How, uh, how in some ways do we adapt this uh, to, to new or different situations that we find ourselves in? The thing that we started with first was this little work called the Didache. For folks who don't know, the, the word Didache um, Spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E, D-A-K-E, it looks like did ache, is it's just a Greek word that means teaching or instruction. And it's uh, the full title is the Didache of the Twelve Apostles. Um, it's a fascinating discussion uh, and adaptation of, um, of things from, say, Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, Didache it, uh, adapts adopts and adapts a lot from the Matthew. There's also some things in there just about sort of like church practice at the time. It gives specific instructions on, on the way in which you baptize someone, which in the New Testament, it's just it, the assumption is there's enough water for you to fully you know, plunge the person under the surface of the water. In the Didache, they actually offer up some stipulations for what you do when you don't have enough water. And I always ask classes, well, what kind of climate can you envision uh, having trouble finding water in. It's like, oh, desert climate. Okay, well, guess where a lot of early Christians lived. Okay, so anyway, that's been a fun class. It's been a Bible study because we've looked at, you know, something that they'll say, and I'll show on the same screen something that Jesus says. I'm like, all right, you know, look at what they're doing here. Um, is this, an, do you think this is in line with Jesus's trajectory? What do you think? And it's fun to be able to ask those kinds of questions. It's even fun to be able to like read something from the Didache or some other uh, work in the Apostolic Fathers and say, do you agree with this? Because you can't really get a lot of good discussion with that kind of thing in a Bible class because everybody knows at least, yes, we agree with it. Okay, but how many of you actually do it? That's a different story. Right. You've taught something kind of similar in some kind of way, when we, when we were talking about this the other day, about uh, sort of what we were wanting to do, I immediately thought of this class because of something that you had said. When you teach a class like this, either at church or someplace on this topic, what kind of stuff do you focus on? And is a class like that, is, is history like this even valuable for spiritual formation? Like how, how can you make something like this devotional and not just 
not just an intellectual exercise. Sure. Um, so I have uh, I have not taught um, in, in a congregational setting anything related to, to patristics or, or mm -hmm. sort of the apostolic yeah. fathers kind of going that far back. Um, I do teach an early church history uh, graduate class at Ambridge and it was kind of your, your experience of sort of leading into those texts is very similar to mine. I usually yeah. assign students to read a gospel and acts over week weeks one and two and then roll right into uh, the oh, dedicated some of these other sort of the other apostolic fathers mm -hmm. and, and kind of begin asking those similar questions about trajectory and you know where we see um, continuity versus change or, or 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 you know continuity versus clarification you know yeah. some might argue and so um, kind of very similar approach but but thinking in a congregational setting you know I've had the opportunity to teach a few classes on kind of Stone Campbell restoration movement history um, and in fact my first book came out of a class series that I did um, at North Tuscaloosa. This would have been, you know, probably three or four years ago now. And so when I was sitting down, kind of getting ready to, to start this series, I had uh, initially eight weeks that I was going to devote to. This was sort of a summer class. Um, by the way, I, I worked in college and young professionals ministry uh, the entire time I was in graduate school versus mm -hmm. an intern and kind of leading the group. So he was responsible for picking out classes and you know getting teachers lined up. So yeah. I had an, you know an eight week uh, summer uh, kind of summer block that that I needed something to do. I was going to do a church history series, and. At one level, there's sort of a lot of nuts and bolts kind of things. Sort of who were some of the important figures? You know, who was Alexander Campbell? Who was Martin W. Stone? Who was, you know, David Lipscomb or, or even some of the, the other namesakes of the school, you know, James yeah. Harding, some of these guys, right? That, that, you know, may or may not be uh, quite as familiar. You know, our, our congregation, we have had several students who have, you know, gone to, you know, to, to Freed Hardman or, or to, to other, you know, other colleges connected with the Churches of Christ. And, you know, maybe they know those names, but they might not know, know much about right. the, the, the namesakes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so kind of a little bit of those things. Um, some narrative history about talking about you know, which issues were important at different times and, you know, when, when divisions happened, but also when periods of, of unity and growth happened, you know, successes and failures, important to get both the good and the bad. Um, but also using it as a way, and this kind of gets to your question about uh, spiritual formation, mm -hmm. and this circles also back around to something we, we talked about uh, er, much earlier in this conversation, which is that sometimes the, the issues of the past um, we, we don't, we're not even aware that those things are issues, uh, but yeah. yet they have played incredibly important roles um, in, in kind of shaping the contours uh, of where we are today. And the, the example here that comes to mind, and this is the, this was the class session where I had to do the most kind of uh, groundwork laying um, back when I originally initially taught this, is on an early 20th century division within Churches of Christ uh, over teachings about the millennium. Uh, <laughs> and uh, broadly speaking today, Churches of Christ are amillennial uh, for, the, for the most part. Uh, can you uh, unpack that term uh, for, for sure. our listeners for yeah. a second? Yeah, so so amillennial, uh, kind of the position, you know, looking at Revelation, kind of the reference to a millennium there, a, a, you know, kind of a, a thousand year reign of Christ. Um, and the amillennial position holds that that is uh, to be understood figuratively, not as a a literal 1000 years of, of, of Jesus reigning, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a more than a political figure, but but, but sort of right. as a political figure. Yeah. Um, 
contrasted with a couple of other schools of thought, uh, premillennialism and postmillennialism. Um, postmillennialism is actually um, in a lot, a lot of the early members of the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement were postmillennialists, including Campbell himself. And what this kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of this uh, idea is that the work of the church uh, would help perfect the earth, would perfect the world, would bring together Christians within the church, you know, kind of unifying the church, restoring the church, would actually um, help perfect the world and bring back, bring the return of Jesus for this thousand year kind of perfect era. Um, Again, this is the, the, the oversimplified version, mm -hmm. whereas uh, sort of the post-millennial view, because the millennium comes after this time of perfection. The pre-millennial view, on the other hand, um, again, the, the very simplified version is the idea that, that basically things will sort of continue as they are until the end of times. Jesus will return, will institute uh, a thousand year uh, time period of, of his rule, and then the, the judgment will take place after that. Uh, that, that things are, are, we are not going to perfect the world through our efforts. Um, somebody more might some more pessimistic kind of worldview uh, yeah. about the millennium. But again, both of those schools of thought hold to the existence of a, of a literal millennium, kind of mm -hmm. this thousand year period. Well, within within the early, early 20th century, within Churches of Christ, um, a, a, a premillennial movement uh, kind of spearheaded in some ways by a guy named R.H. Bowl uh, kind of came up um, most closely connected with churches in Louisville and New Orleans. Um, but there was this massive division within the church and, and sort of, you know, people kind of like hounded this guy and, and his followers about their views on the millennium. And as a result, and again, kind of setting aside, you know, personal views about which, which of these schools kind of best fits the biblical text, right? You know, it, it created a situation where the amillennial position was so dominant that it's not even discussed. Right. Mm -hmm. it, 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 in a lot of circles and even in my own experience in churches of Christ, the amillennial perspective on the millennium was the only perspective put forward. Like this, this is the way that you understand this. Right. And so when I started sort of talking about, you know, the premillennial controversy, uh, I had to sort of, sort of go back and, and unpack what those were. And, and, and for some of the, the members in class, and these were people with, you know, with, with, with college degrees, some of the mm -hmm. advanced degrees, you know, who had taken, you know, taken you know, classes, have been in the members of the churches of Christ their whole life. And, and but had no vocabulary that or, or a concept that you could sort of read that any differently. Well, of mm -hmm. course it's uh, of course it's figured. Of course it's not meant to be right. read. Literally. Well, actually, you know, it's sort of a minority position in, in the larger uh, Christian world to, to say yeah. that this uh, to say this is figurative. And so, uh, all that is to say, this is kind of kind of getting to your original question here. Uh, as a historian, I tend to find myself talking in circles. I probably know what that's <laughs> you, like. You promised um, to me we would chase a lot of rabbits uh, yeah, when we were yeah. talking about this the other day, so I, good, I'm happy. Good. <laughs> oh, good, good. But getting back to that question is to say, well, where does this intersect with spiritual formation? Mm -hmm. It, again, it alerts us to new ways or sometimes old ways of, of reading passages, uh, of ways of understanding, um, you know, things about the gospel or things about the Bible, uh, more broadly speaking. Um, it also helps us think through what our views are, right? When we're sort of views that perhaps we have not ever had challenged before or, or, or something that has been presented to us as this is how it is. Um, but when we study history, when we study church history, we see people maybe believe something very different and we might agree or we might disagree with that. We might come back to, the, to our original position and say, well, I think I had it right to begin with. I think this is a, a better reading, but we've still done the work. We've still thought through the issue. And hopefully as a result, we have come to a better knowledge um, of the Bible, but also of God uh, in that process. 
Um, secondarily, besides that, I, I think there's also uh, some devotional uh, applications of reading church history. I think there are things that are inspirational. I think you know, reading stories of, of, of great thinkers, of great speakers, of, of humble servants from the past at times can inspire us to to redouble our efforts. I think we can also read cautionary tales from the past about times where the church maybe hasn't uh, met the mark or sort of uh, lived up to its calling yeah. can encourage us to, to hopefully do better in the present as well. Yeah, li I like all of that. Um, and it really makes a lot of sense too, especially for someone who, like myself, was a history major and always appreciated kind of the lessons of history um, always just sort of inherently looked to see what had happened in the past and had tried to make sense of it in, in the present because history, history was my best subject in high school. It was my favorite subject in high school. It made sense that I was, um, that I'd be a history major in undergrad. One thing that you mentioned also earlier, sort of value of church history for non-historians. The second thing you mentioned was the ability to empathize with uh, different people's uh, experiences. It, it's interesting. I can see a connection with that and kind of what you've just mentioned here, where you know it, it's tempting for us to. Um, it's tempting for a lot of folks, I think, to experience some degree of what has been termed chronological snobbery. We can kind of look back at those those quaint, simple fools in the past and realize that you know, well, maybe they were not so quaint and simple. Maybe there's a lot more complexity when we actually take the time to dig into what they're doing. One, uh, one thing that actually got me into teaching from the Apostolic Fathers was a class that I, uh, that I started teaching when, and taught for, I think, I think we did maybe like five or six weeks on it, um, just in the summer at one point while I was still uh, preaching and working on my doctorate in Kentucky. Um, it was on the heels of the restoration movement class that I mentioned earlier that my friend Garrett Best had, had done. And for those of you who are kind enough to watch or listen, uh, you can check out uh, from uh, from around the time of uh, late June, that was when my episode with Garrett, uh, Garrett published on demystifying the book of Revelation. Um, a great conversation and uh, got a little more on the works. I, I won't give away too much, but there's a little more in the works for, uh, you know, for, for Garrett and uh, Garrett and I talking about Revelation. But Garrett had uh, finished up his tenure with us. He'd moved back to uh, move back to Memphis. And uh, I was there to basically present his the last week or two of his material on um, on restoration movement his, history. I thought it would be interesting to go back even farther, right? Because the restoration movement, as you have said, and for those who are familiar, the restoration movement was intended to be a unity movement. Guys, surely we can all agree on the importance of Scripture if we can just read Scripture in this simple way. We should be able to figure out what's going on. And on paper, that sounds really great. The problem, like you've said, and others have noted too, is, well, we have interpretive lenses, right, for how we understand. You know, is this, is this practice or example binding versus this practice or example, et cetera? Another conversation for another time. But the restoration movement was intended to be a unity movement. So I thought, okay, well, what if we go back to earliest attempts of unity? Some of those earliest attempts are the different creeds that came up 
And one one interesting thing that the that the restoration movement tried to do was to try to cut through all these creedal additions and you know kind of caps that we would put on scripture um where people would say i i accept this version of this creed well you accept this version of this other creed and well anyway we just we can't even agree on what creeds neglecting the entire bible um i went back and said all right well let's look at here's something that's going on in church history there this was a real threat you know this guy named marcion this was a real threat to church unity and that's spelled m-a-r-c-i-o-n for those who are uh those are listening or watching. I'll, for those who are watching, I'll have, um, I have some of these names and stuff that John and I have mentioned kind of show up on the bottom of the screen here. But this guy, Marcion, presented a real threat because, uh, you know, he was, you know, kind of questioning some things about, uh, about God and the Bible. And there are other folks, too, who uh, had some uh, very peculiar views about the nature of Jesus, his divinity versus humanity and stuff like that. Attempts to maintain unity led to the development of these kinds of statements that we now know as creeds. And I walked, uh, I walked this class through um, this church of about 90 or so folks. On a good Wednesday night, we'd have 20 or 25 uh, there in the auditorium. And uh, I walked us through some of these early versions of things like the Apostolic, or sorry, the Apostles' Creed, um, you know, and other, other ones like that. It's like kind of went by line by line. The disease is like, okay, we would all affirm all of this, right? Yeah, there's nothing in here that we would not affirm. The reason why this kind of thing developed is because they were, they were being threatened, like church unity, church doctrine and practice was being threatened. And so they, in an effort to maintain unity, said, all right, um, this is the lens, right? This is the lens that we're going to read scripture. And everyone in here in this auditorium tonight would affirm, yeah, absolutely. I'm down with that, 100%. I can roll with that. That led to not a, not a greater, not a huge degree of empathy for some of this kind of stuff. But I think some folks began to say, oh, okay. Maybe there was some honorable things that we end up looking at later and think, eh. I wouldn't go that route, but maybe some of this stuff did start out honorably. And um, some of these early, early Christians, second, third, second, third century Christians, things that they did, I now can understand that in that moment of desperation to maintain unity or uh, protect uh, historic orthodoxy. Yeah, I can see why they did that kind of thing. That is a case in point. Of, uh, of being able to empathize, uh, like you mentioned earlier. And I think also, uh, also too, it kind of, you know, I, I can be a little bit more gracious to them because I understand sort of some of the threats that they were going. Hopefully, I, I, God will be gracious to me as well <laughs> when he sees my attempts. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, and this would be, uh, you know, perhaps another discussion for another day, but one of the difficulties of kind of the, the common sense school of philosophy or the common sense hermeneutic, which has, has really you know, been so prevalent, you know, right, in, in the history of the Restoration Movement, and this is sort of the, the very simplest version of this is this idea that, you know, as applied to scripture, that if, if we all approach 
reading the Bible in good faith. We're all reading the same things. We should come to the same conclusions. The, that is an incredibly laudable idea, right? We, 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 we would want to think that we would be able to, to find agreement in what scripture says. But the flip side of that coin, or at least as, as it has played out in our history at times, is the underlying twin assumption that if we don't come to the same conclusion, well, I know I'm reading it accurately. <laughs> um, Kevin must not be reading it in good faith, or he must be trying to, to insert his own opinions into yeah. this. If he was really committed to understanding, he would see things how I do. And, and again, that gets into a whole other you know, right. conversation about about how we read scripture and and, and the best ways to do that and, and some of the, the pitfalls in various ways. But it is just to say that, you know, the idea of, of returning to, to roots, restorationism, of, of seeking that that goal of, of being like the early church at times was tempered with that unity, that, that goal of finding unity. But it, in other times, the, the unity kind of got thrown out um, and it led it, it can lead sort of can still lead uh, to a pretty graceless perspective where it's sort of it, it, I'm right and by virtue of disagreeing with me you are wrong and and you're not reading scripture in good faith yeah uh, yeah when you that common sense approach like you said uh, the positive side of that is you extend to the other person the dignity of of their of their rationality, right? You and the ability for the like they have the yeah. ability just as much as I do to to read and to come to conclusions. But the problem was when I when I bind my my common sense interpretation as the only common sense interpretation right. of something, and that, you know substitute my wisdom for uh, the common sense wisdom of humanity, that, that becomes an issue. <laughs> yeah, that's um, at best it, it, it's noble. At worst, it's uh, it's sort of self-aggrandizing in a in a very ugly way. John, is there anything that you would uh, that you would want to leave us with as we begin to wrap up today? I, I think I've probably chased enough rabbits today. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, for for the, the three people that are still listening, uh, we'll we'll go ahead and let them uh, let them break break for lunch early. There is an extra star in y'all's crown. We appreciate. It. Yes. <laughs> well, John, this has been a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, you and I, it was it was a dinner at like a TAGI Fridays or something there in, in Knoxville where you and I sat next to each other and we geeked out about, about history and stuff like that. Uh, it has been a lot of fun being able to dig into some of these things with you. And for those who are kind enough to stick with us, I appreciate this. I hope that y'all have been encouraged to maybe learn a little bit more about uh, not just uh, not just the 2,000 years of specifically Christian history, but particularly history of churches of Christ. And maybe even one interesting place to start might be the history of your own congregation. I mean, some, yes. you know, some churches that have been around in, in places that are sort of pockets of the Bible Belt, like Florence or Nashville or other places like that. Some, some of those congregations have been around for quite a while and have a rich history that uh, you might not even know about. Let me encourage y'all to dig into that kind of stuff as well. John? Or perhaps if you're feeling adventurous, consider writing one. Hey! We need more congregational histories uh, for historians <laughs> of future generations to know what we were up to in 2021. Yeah, yeah. no, like th that, that is actually an admirable task. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, if, if anything, it would definitely help those who are interested in, in being uh, elders or deacons or, or working at yes. those kinds of congregations to know, really to know the spiritual history to, um, of, um, of your church or even your family, too. That's another way you can kind of maybe engage in this fun exercise that we've been talking about. 
John, I really appreciate it, sir. And I'm honored to be able to share this uh, conversation time with you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to, to join in for the conversation today. Appreciate your friendship. Likewise. Take care, sir. As well. Bye-bye.